Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Our passage last week described a busy Sabbath day in the life of Jesus. He was in Capernaum and had been invited by the ruler of the synagogue to teach. And it quickly became apparent that Jesus did not teach like the other scribes. Jesus taught with authority. The prophets of old would say, the Lord says, And the scribes of the day would remind people of what the prophets of old had said, and they would seek to explain it. But Jesus would say, but I tell you. And what he offered was new, and the people were amazed. But they didn't understand who he really was. But one person did. There was a man there that morning with an unclean spirit who declared that he knew who Jesus was. And he called him the Holy One of God. But Jesus didn't tolerate him one bit. As soon as the man began to cause a disturbance, Jesus commanded the demon to come out. And it was forced to comply. And again, the people were amazed. They had never seen someone with authority over unclean spirits. The rest of the Sabbath day was spent in a private home, the house of Simon Peter. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law from fever by taking her by the hand and helping her to her feet. Both miracles, public and private, illustrate the gospel. In both situations, it wasn't the person in need who asked for help, and they were both unable to help themselves. But Jesus did what they couldn't do. They simply responded to what Jesus did. In the same way, we're unable to save ourselves. Our sin separates us from God because he is perfectly holy. But Jesus did what we can't. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And his righteousness, earned through his obedience, is given to us simply by believing and trusting in him. And we can participate in his mission by telling others the good news of the gospel the good news of what Jesus has done. And that's what happened that day in Capernaum. People told others about what Jesus did in the synagogue, and the news traveled fast. So fast that as the Sabbath was over, as soon as the Sabbath was over and people could freely travel again, crowds of people came to Simon's house. And that evening, Jesus healed many people from diseases and and cast out more demons. By all appearances, this was a very successful day. Ministry was flourishing in Capernaum. And the disciples must have been excited to be on the inside of this new movement, to to be the ones sharing a house with Jesus so that when all others are gone, there they are with him, a budding celebrity. The success of that day makes our passage today seem a bit puzzling because Again, Jesus defies expectations. He doesn't operate like rabbis in that day. 
or celebrity pastors in our day. Though he must have been tired after healing and dealing with so many people late into the night, he didn't sleep in. He woke up early before anyone else. Was he troubled? Was he unsure of whether he should stay in Capernaum or go? Without telling his disciples, he left Simon's house early in the morning while it was still dark. And he went out of Capernaum to a desolate place. The word translated desolate is the same word for wilderness where John the Baptist preached and where Jesus was tempted. And the point of the word isn't to make you think of a hot desert wasteland, but to think of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, which was a place of testing and refinement, a place of repentance, restoration, and fellowship with God. That's where Jesus went to pray. And prayer was a key part of the ministry of Jesus. He, he did everything in step with the Father's direction. You know, Luke mentions Jesus's prayer life with greater frequency than Mark. And John's gospel contains an entire chapter with the words of one of Jesus's prayers. But Mark only mentions Jesus praying three times in his gospel account. Here, and then soon after the feeding of the 5,000, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. All three occur at night and in solitary places. At each time, it seems that Jesus receives direction that's counterintuitive to what the crowds and disciples expect. But he isn't swayed by crowds or public opinion. His concern is doing the will of his Father which is exactly what our concern ought to be. But we so easily get caught up in keeping up appearances or if we're not trying to satisfy others, then we get caught up gratifying ourselves. But Jesus always sought to do the will of God. While Jesus was praying to his father, he was rudely interrupted by Simon Peter. At some point in the morning, Simon and the other disciples realized that Jesus was missing. Perhaps people had begun knocking on the door to come see Jesus. Simon may have been embarrassed because he didn't know where Jesus was. And he didn't want to lose the enthusiasm of the potential new followers showing up at his door. The ESV says that the Simon and the others with him searched for Jesus. But the word that Mark used has more hostility in it. They hunted him down. And, and you might have noticed that Mark doesn't refer to them here as disciples because they aren't operating as disciples, but as brand consultants or handlers. Now, they assume that Jesus' ministry ought to continue as it did the day before, but they didn't understand the mission of Jesus. His primary purpose was not to be a wonder worker, but to proclaim the kingdom of God. And to do that, he's going to have to keep traveling to different places. I don't know if, if Simon was older than Jesus. He was certainly a savvy businessman to have competed in the Galilean fishing industry. But it, it seems like Peter had his own ideas about what he thought Jesus should be doing. He didn't understand that his call to be a disciple 
meant that he was to be a follower of Jesus, not a leader of Jesus. Though he wasn't operating with the right motives, he was successful in his mission. He found Jesus. And today it's common to hear people use phrases like, I found Jesus, as if Jesus was hiding. Uh, when people use that phrase, they, they mean it as a good thing. But in Mark's gospel, the Greek word behind looking for Jesus occurs 10 times, and in each time, its meaning is negative. The first two times refer to someone interrupting Jesus. The next two refer to disbelief and faithlessness. And the remaining ones refer to various attempts to kill Jesus. Looking for Jesus in Mark's gospel has the connotation of seeking to determine or control rather than to submit and follow. The crowds and disciples looking for Jesus wanted something from him. We naturally associate crowds with success, but bigger isn't always better. And a successful ministry can't be measured by its size, but its depth. Because enthusiasm is not the same as faith. Several years ago, Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. The idea behind his book is that a lot of people act like fans of Jesus. As a fan, they're enthusiastic admirers. It's no secret that I'm a fan of UCF football. I have a logo on the front and back of my car and a miniature replica of the stadium on my desk. I enjoy watching every game that I can and I cheer for them, win or lose, but I don't actually play on the team, never have. And I think it's safe to say at this point that I never will. There's a difference between being a fan and being on the team. That's the point Kyle makes in his book. There's a difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. At this point in Jesus's ministry, even his closest disciples were more like fans than followers. But Jesus gently redirects them and declares his intention for them to go into other towns to preach. He adds that that is why he came out. His mission is to preach. He wasn't just a social activist there to heal every temporal problem before moving on to the next town, nor was he a contemplative ascetic, spending all his time praying in the wilderness. He was much more complicated than any label we might try to impose upon him but we learn about him by what he did and taught. Verse 39 provides a summary of the ministry Jesus did during this period of time. He went throughout the region of Galilee, visiting various towns, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It'd be fascinating to learn about the particulars of each day in the life of Jesus. You know, how many towns did he go to? How many people did he heal? What kind of conversations did he have with his disciples at the end of each day? The gospel writers couldn't possibly include everything that happened. In fact, John concluded his account with the words, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
Mark had to be selective in his account. In the second part of our passage, he picked an interesting encounter that Jesus had during this phase of his ministry. We aren't told where or when this happened. Mark skipped the context and just jumped right into the action with a story that's rather shocking. A leper came up to Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Imagine the headlines today, or even better, a, a year or so ago, if someone with a confirmed case of COVID came up to the president. It would have been appalling behavior, horribly irresponsible and probably illegal in the early days of the pandemic when people were arrested for coughing on others or licking groceries because they were considered acts of terrorism. Like COVID has been, leprosy in the ancient world was a big deal. The Greek word is lepra, from which we get the word leprosy, but it's not the same thing as what we call leprosy today, which is Hansen's disease. Lepra wasn't a specific disease at all, but a general term for a variety of skin diseases, such as psoriasis, lupus, boils, scalp conditions, and ringworm. The word was also used to describe mold on clothing or a house. It was important to know about it and manage it so that it wouldn't spread or cause harm to the community. And so the Bible devotes two chapters to it in the book of Leviticus. Chapters 13 and 14 read like an ancient manual on dermatology. In Leviticus chapter 13, the following instructions are given. The person afflicted with an infectious skin disease is to have his clothes torn and his hair hanging loose, and he must cover his mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. He will remain unclean as long as he has the infection. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. The disease robbed people of their dignity. It ruined their name, occupation, habits, and separated them from family, fellowship, and the worshiping community. They had to ensure their visual appearance looked awful so that people from far away could know to keep their distance. Josephus, a first century historian, spoke of the banishment of lepers as those in no way differing from a corpse. Leprosy had an even greater impact on Jewish people because of the purity laws set forth in Leviticus. The purity laws have to do with being clean or unclean. There's often confusion about these laws in the Bible. You'll see that confusion in memes shared on social media that say things like, the Bible hates women because it declares them to be unclean every month for causes that are completely natural. But unclean doesn't mean sinful. Being unclean could be the result of sin. For example, if you decided to purposefully eat or touch something forbidden. But there are plenty of everyday things that would make you ritually unclean for a time. Now, the problem isn't being unclean, but entering the temple in an unclean state. And the law doesn't just tell you what makes you unclean. It explains how you can be made clean again. And so it wasn't a permanent problem. Now, we don't have to worry about these ceremonial laws today because Jesus has made us ritually clean once and for all time through his death and resurrection, a permanent cleansing, which is symbolized in our baptism. But in the time of Jesus, 
before his redemptive work on the cross, the ceremonial laws were in place, which means that this leper violated God's law by approaching Jesus. But he does so with faith that Jesus can help him. The man recognized the authority and power of Jesus. He knelt before him and acknowledged his belief that Jesus can cleanse him if he wills. Indeed, Jesus can do whatever it is that he wills to do. The man's plea shows that he didn't question Jesus's ability to help him, only his willingness to help him. And that's often the case with our prayers. You know, intellectually, we know that God, who is omnipotent, can do anything. It's not his ability we doubt, but his willingness. Will he do what we ask? Our, our desire when we pray should be that God's will be done and not our own. And when we pray according to God's will, then we are guaranteed to receive whatever it is that we ask for. But how do we do that? Well, it's not that complicated, but we tend to make it so by overthinking it. But it should happen naturally if you're a Christian. As you read the Bible and study God's word with other Christians, and as you listen to good teaching and mature through difficult life situations, over time, your perspective and concerns will align more with God so that the things you want to pray for are the things you ought to pray for. So the simple answer is to just pray for whatever you want. And when your prayer isn't aligned with God's will, know that he's not sliding you or, or causing you harm. In fact, he's doing it for your good because we often pray for the wrong things. This man made his request with the recognition that the decision was entirely up to Jesus which is quite the contrast from what Peter did in the previous verses, trying to tell Jesus what he ought to be concerned about. And moved with pity, Jesus did something just as shocking as what the leper did. I'd love to see what the faces of the disciples were like when the leper came so close to Jesus. And, and then again, when Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You know, I wonder if they tried to stop him or if they made an audible gasp because touching an unclean person would make him unclean, which is the last thing his growing ministry needs. And what if Jesus got leprosy? It's no wonder this miracle is preserved in the gospel accounts. It made an impression on the disciples. When Jesus touched the man, he didn't become unclean. Rather, the unclean man became clean. This offers a significant clue to the identity of Jesus. He is a holy man who cannot be defiled. Rather, he makes others holy. That's the gospel message. We are unholy, defiled by our sin, unclean like a leper, but Jesus isn't defiled by us. Rather, he cleanses us from our leprous hearts. Well, it seems the miracle reveals the true identity of Jesus a little too well. And it's not time for Jesus to be understood as the Messiah by the masses because of their nationalistic expectations for the Messiah. They wanted a conquering hero, 
But Jesus was to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men. He was to be more like the leper than an honored king. And so Jesus sternly charged the man to keep quiet. The word used in Greek literally says that Jesus snorted at him, which recalls the Hebrew idiom for anger, which means to flare the nostrils. Jesus spoke strongly, telling him to keep this miracle silent. And he sent him away at once, which is how he handled the demon earlier. He didn't want to attract too much attention because it wasn't his time. Jesus needed to continue to preach, unhindered by mobs of people clamoring for miracles. At this point, Jesus hadn't yet drawn the ire of the scribes. They've they've been surprised by his actions so far, but they haven't been hostile yet. Though they will soon feel threatened by Jesus, feeling as if he's subverting the whole order of their religion. But Jesus upheld the true order of religion. When he sent the man away, he said to him, go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. The priests were in charge of determining cases of leprosy and declaring when they're clean. It might have been tempting for the man who is now clean to keep it to himself because the process of being declared clean from leprosy, which we read in our Old Testament reading from Leviticus chapter 14, would have been costly. But Jesus expected him to do it because Jesus upheld the Mosaic law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, we don't know whether the man actually showed himself to the priest or not, but he doesn't seem to be the obedient type. He immediately did the one thing Jesus told him not to do. He went out and talked freely about the miracle. he, He met Jesus He was cleansed by Jesus, but he wasn't willing to be obedient to Jesus. Why? Was he ungrateful, selfish, sinful? Yes. And the result of his disobedience was harmful to Jesus's ministry. So much so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because of the crowds. And people were coming to him from every quarter wanting to be healed. Modern politicians and pop stars live for this kind of attention. Their very survival depends on remaining in the public eye. But Jesus's mission isn't to increase his brand recognition. His goal isn't to be famous or to be loved by everyone. Rather, he knows that he will be despised and rejected by the very ones he's coming to save. He got a taste of that from this leper who immediately ratted him out. And so he's back in verse 45, where he was in verse 35, in desolate places, the wilderness. The ministry of Jesus was and still is frequently misunderstood. He doesn't operate in the way we expect. But our job isn't to evaluate his ministry, but to recognize who he is. Who is this? that doesn't become defiled by being touched, but rather makes clean? Will he make us clean and acceptable before God? And most importantly, do you put your trust in him?
Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 